Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks given to the Farnham U3A World History Group. In this talk, Peter Duffy tells us about British art between the wars. And he tells us about the leading artists of the time. to do today is to look at what happened to British art as a result of the Great War. And we can begin with this. Paul Nash, 1917, We Are Making a New World. And it's talking about that new world a bit that I'd like to do today. What I really want to do is to see how the enormous changes which happened in British art and in society at large, how these can be understood as illustrating the cataclysmic dislocations that occurred in the, in the word I'll use here, zeitgeist, l'esprit du temps. The English phrase, the spirit of the times, is weaker than its French and German equivalents. The narrative history that is, we're used to is a record of a series of events often supposedly causally linked. But behind these events, shaping them is another history. And this is demonstrated by cultural changes manifested in literature and in music and in art. The word that the French historians who developed the study of such changes is mentalité, translated by the word attitudes. It describes the way in which people of a given time thought and felt about their world as opposed to the narrative history of events or politics. It is such attitudes which often explain events and politics. And this goes to the heart of a particular branch of history, art history. When we study history, generally, we have to ask ourselves, how do we know what actually happened in the past and why? Now, there can be all sorts of written records, some more reliable or complete, and less partial than others. More recently, there have been audio, film, and TV recordings to supplement these. And from the more distant times, there's archaeology. Now, a perfect example of this can be seen by comparing Edward Gibbon's 18th century classic, Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Now, this is the history group, so I imagine you have all read that. Now, that's a source from then extant written records, telling the story largely from the Roman point of view. Now, if you compare that with the recent study, The Fall of the Roman Empire, by Peter Hiller, which draws on archaeological sources to supplement the written records and to illustrate what occurred from the point of view of the migrating groups who flooded into the empire and why. This draws a completely different picture than Gibbons. Now, in 1872, the great historian Jacob Burkhardt, describing how history evolved, wrote, a historical power comes into being, covering all possible forms of earthly life, political organizations, privileged classes, a religion closely knit together with secular life, great possessions, a complete code of manners, a definite conception of law. These are all developed out of it and associated with it, and in time come to regard themselves as props to that power, or even as the sole possible exponents of the moral forces of that epoch. But the spirit works in the depths. The breach comes 
whether by revolution or gradual decay, bringing with it the breakdown of moral systems and religions, the apparent downfall of that power, or even the end of that world. Between 1914 and 18, such a breach occurred. And in describing the impact of the war, the Irish poet W.B. Yeats wrote, things fall apart the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, whilst the worst are full of passionate intensity. And the writer Paul Fisso has described in his classic analysis, The Great War and Modern Memory, the impact of that war on literature and on human consciousness, and the difference between the pre- and post-war literary languages. He said of the pre-war scene, there was no wasteland with its rats alleys, dull canals, and dead men who have lost their bones. It would take four years to bring those to consciousness. There was no Ulysses, no Morbelly, no Cantos, no Kafka, no Proust, no War, no Auden, no Huxley, no Cummins, no Women in Love, or Lady Chatterley's Lover. There was no Valley of Ashes in the Great Gatsby. One read Hardy and Kipling and Conrad and frequented the worlds of traditional moral action, delineated in traditional moral language. So what I'm going to try to do today is to illustrate how art, as well as literature, reveals the impact of the war years, and how we should study the art produced during and after the war, just as we study the poetry of Wilfred Owen and Secret Sassoon, of T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound, if we want to understand the mentality produced by the Great War. Now, so to go back slightly, what was the state of British society prior to the First World War? One outstanding feature was that the country had experienced only one major war, the Crimean War, in the preceding 100 years. There had been a century of peace. Now, I know there have been all sorts of colonial conflicts, but great wars, which really involved the country, to a huge degree, uh, there had only been the Crimean War. There had, in fact, been a century of peace. And in that time, Britain had been through a period of huge economic growth because it was the home of the first true industrial revolution. Parallel with and linked to it, it had developed a range of imperial markets, not just with India, but with what we now are the countries of the, of the Commonwealth, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, and, although not formally in the empire, Latin America. Now, key to this was the city of London as a source of, for finance and trade and investment. As the associated companies equipped themselves for the modern world with new cities, railroads, steamships, there was a, that's a great network of financial links. Now, alongside and supporting these links, there had been a huge wave of emigration. During the period, approximately 10 million people emigrated from the UK, yet the home population grew from 12 million in 1811 to 45 million in 1911. British society before the Great War was socially deeply divided. Disraeli's two nations still survived, and of course still survive to this day. Working classes, who made up 80% of the population, were crammed into the industrial cities, manning those industries that were the basis of Britain's greatness the mining, the steel, the making ships, textiles, railway and train construction. 
in the years running up to the war, the social conditions experienced by the workers bred huge discontent, leading to massive strikes, to the growth of the labor movement, seeking better working conditions, and representation in Parliament. At the other extreme were the landed gentry and those individuals who derived their wealth from the great industries that were a feature of this capitalist world. It was from amongst this group that a later diplomat called the ruling few were drawn, the statesmen, the politicians, the senior civil servants, bishops of the established church, members of the Indian and colonial service, and senior members of the armed forces. They ruled with a confidence that, that their birth and wealth supplied. And alongside this group of aristocrats and plutocrats, there was a growing middle class, people by men such as lawyers, doctors, and teachers. It was from amongst this top 20%, and indeed only a small group within it, that there came the buyers of fine art. They therefore decided what themes would be painted and how, what was to be exhibited and bought, and who thus decided which artists prospered. Fine art of this period, that is painted pictures that could be bought and hung on walls, demonstrating the culture of the owner, was thus very much a class matter. Now, public art was similarly financed by the same sort of people. The great diaspora of the British meant there were new cities to be built with all their civic buildings, parliaments, town halls, universities, courts, school banks, and commercial offices. It was a feature of the time that such buildings were furnished with paintings, mosaics, that told the story of these emigrants and their settling in the new lands. The most famous international painter of such works was Frank Brangwyn, whose designs can be seen in a number of civic buildings from countries such as America, Canada, South Africa, and in the Royal Exchange and livery companies in the city. In the years before the war, four trends could be seen in the British art world. Firstly, and most importantly, for a number of practicing artists were those who sought to be represented in the summer shows at the Royal Academy. It was here that the works of the most prestigious artists could be seen and sales made. The dominant style that it promoted was academia, preserving the approach of its founders, with the emphasis on formal structures, clear and realistic images, and storytelling through the genres of history painting. Such an approach can be best seen in the works of the president in 1914, Sir Edward Pointer. It was a sort of art that well-to-do upper and middle-class people could feel comfortable with. It affirmed their cultural standing without making too many intellectual or aesthetic de demands. Now, for the more adventurous, there was the New England Art Club, which had been formed in the late 1880s to show the works of English artists who'd been influenced by Impressionism. Included in the memberships were artists such as George Singer Sargent, and George Clarkson, rejecting both the formal academicism of the RA and, in their opinion, outdated approach of the New England, the art critics Roger Fry and Clive Bell, in 1910 and 1912, mounted for the first time in Britain exhibitions to show London the sort of work that was then current in Paris. This included paintings by the Post-Impressionists, a word that Fry and Bell invented, artists such as Matisse, Seurat, Van Gogh, Picasso, and especially Cezanne. Now the focus was 
on paintings which were non-representational, that were non-storytelling, and where abstraction, colour and massing would create significant form which would give rise to an aesthetic response. Finally, there was a small, tiny group led by the artist Wyndham Lewis, which proposed a new art to respond to the conditions of the modern industrial world. They called themselves the Rebel Art Group. Their movement was vorticism. Before the war broke out, it issued a manifesto in the magazine Blast, which blasted everything that Lewis considered to be outdated, such as Frank Brangwyn and decorative art, and blessed all those things which he felt truly supported the emergence of modern art that truly expressed modern times. As well as Lewis, it included young artists such as William Roberts, David Bomberg, Eric Wadsworth, Jacob Epstein, Nevinson, Jessica Dismore, all of whom had attended the Slade School of Art. In the years before the war, the Slade School trained a number of highly talented young artists many of whom were later to provide the core of British art. They included, as well as members of the Vorticist group, names such as Duncan Grant, Vanessa Bell, Augustus and Gwen John, William Orpen, and just before the war, Matthew Smith, Stanley Spencer, Paul Nash, Mark Gertler, Dora Carrington, and Ben Nicholson. It was probably the most brilliant generation of young artists that Britain had ever produced, many of whom, however, because of their youth, were to be the ones directly involved in battle. So what was the impact of the war on British society? The extent of this is hard for us to realise today, but the result was a series of social ruptures, clearly evident in Germany, Austria, Russia, France and Italy, and also to a lesser and more delayed extent in Spain. England was not immune. It had a hideous effect on individuals, and on society at large, and thus on the social consciousness in which art was created. Now, firstly, in economic terms, the war was a disaster for Britain. The country turned from being an international creditor to being deeply in debt. The pound fell by 40%, inflation doubled the cost of servicing that debt, unemployment soared up to 20% by the end of the 1920s. Historic markets were lost, Social unrest widespread before the war intensified, leading to the general strike of 1926. This was followed by the Great Cash of 1929 and the election for the first time of a Labour government under Ramsay MacDonald. But in human terms, approximately 700,000 men died in the war, plus 100,000 from food shortages, 200,000 from the Spanish flu epidemic. This left a huge human generation gap in the population. But to this must be added some 200,000 men who <coughs> were wounded to such a degree they could not return to the battlefield, but who remained a damaged presence throughout the country for a generation. In addition, there were a further 80,000 cases of disabling shell shock. But this didn't include a, a large number of men who were able to manage their condition during the war, but who later broke down after the war suffering from what we now call post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, this condition was significantly represented amongst artists active in the interwar period, and we will look at several of their number later. What is also clear is the impact of the war on the ruling few. 
It was not just the economic and social structures that the war damaged. The officers, and particularly the young officer class, who would have been the natural future leaders, were disproportionately slaughtered. It was they who led the attacks and who suffered commensurately. 17% of the officers were killed against 12% of the other ranks. Eaton alone, the training ground for the ruling classes, lost over a thousand of its old boys, 20% of those who served. These material and personal losses, right across the social board, had a profound impact on the fabric of the nation and on its rulers' self-confidence. And on the other side, the diminution of the deference that had previously been expected from the working classes. The soldiers blamed their rulers for having led them into the morass, and its expression, which you know, invented later, but in many ways true, lions led by donkeys. Now, at a personal level for individual artists, the challenge was how to take this hideous aspect of modernity into their lives. How to find an artistic language that could express it, and how to find forms by, by which a world that contains such a war could be described and criticised. In looking at the problem in this way, what becomes obvious is that the closer to the actual engagement in the war individual artists actually came, the more conscious they were of the enormity of the problem, yet of the need to confront it, to create an artistic language which included this aspect of their modern world. And we can develop four categories to explore this further. Firstly, there were those artists who produced work for the well-to-do, and especially for those who desired a rappel l'ordre, a return to order, those for whom producing work for the Royal Academy and the New England Art Club remain the main goals. Now, a prime example for such artists was uh, Alfred Munnings, later Sir Alfred, and eventually the president of the Royal Academy. He didn't serve in the military, being blind in one eye. And during the war, he painted officers on horseback. He was the horse painter par excellence. There was some movement, however, even in this group. The panels created by Frank Brangwyn, the most pu famous public artist of his time, for the House of Lords, commemorating the sons of peers who'd been killed in the war, were rejected. If you want to see them, go down to Swansea, the Brangwyn Hall there. The maintenance of the empire, which these panels celebrated, became increasingly less affordable and morally questionable. Secondly, there were those artists and critics, such as members of the Bloomsbury Group, Roger Fry, Duncan Grant, Vanessa Bell, Clyde Bell, who set out the war as non-competence, as conscientious objectors. The war itself had little or no direct physical or mental impact on them, though their reaction to the post-war war is interesting. They continued on the way that they'd mapped out before the war, apparently unconscious of the fundamental changes that had occurred in the world around them. Hugely influential through their publications on art and their control of the Bloomsbury House Journal, the New Statesman, they decided what was exhibited and what was bought. Now, if you go to Charleston, how many of you have been to Charleston, the, the Bloomsbury House on the South Coast? Well, if you go there, you go, I think, particularly into the church, the house itself is pretty boring. But even the church, how vapid the art is. 
However, their support was vital in the post-war careers of abstract artists such as Ben Nicholson, Barbara Hepworth, and Henry Moore. Now, the difference between the non-competent Clunesry group and the group of young artists with war experience can be seen most vividly in the comments that Bell made on the exhibition of war paintings in 1920 and in Wyndham Lewis's response. Holding fast to his aesthetic vision inspired by the world of French post-impressionism, Bell wrote, these thoughtful young men whose works have been causing such a commotion might almost as well have been blind. They seem to have seen nothing. At any rate, they have not reacted to what they saw in that particular way in which visual artists react. They're not expressing what they feel for something that has moved them as artists, but rather what they think of something that has horrified them as men. Their pictures depart not from visual sensation, but from a moral conviction. So naturally enough, what they produce is mere arty anecdote. In the brothers Spencer and the brothers Nash, Mr. Roberts, Mr. Bomberg, Mr. Lamb, I find plenty of ability, only I fancy they might have mistaken the nature of their gifts. Were they really born to be painters? I wonder. Let us admire, for instance, the admirable, though somewhat negative qualities of the work of Mr. Lewis, the absence of vulgarity and false sentiment, the sobriety of colour, the painstaking search for design, without forgetting at the Salon d'Auton or the Salon des Indépendants, a picture by him would neither merit nor obtain from the most generous critic more than the passing word of perfunctory encouragement. The following week, Lewis made a slashing response. He, Clyde Bell, is concerned for the honour of his country. The military character of the spectacle, the exhibition of war paintings, is alone enough to disturb him. And of course, he had no hand in marshalling it, not even as a non-com barking at its heels. When you consider the five long years he's been exiled from France, it is no wonder that he should give proof of an almost ecstatic contentment in being able, at last, to get there again. In just a few words, Lewis mocked Bell's devotion to French pre-war painting as the guiding light for the new post-war world, and as an ex-fighting soldier, mocked him also for his being a non-competent, yet daring to criticise painting by those who had experienced war, an experience that was beyond his comprehension. The third group uh, was a group of official war artists. Those whose experiences of the war were largely as observers, and in this clique and group, artists such as Muirhead Bone, Sergeant again, and Orpen. When William Orpen went as a war artist, he painted some very moving pictures. When we look at their works, and the works of many other of the official war artists who had not served in the trenches, or who had not experienced the full impact of modern war directly and personally, we can see that however strongly they felt, their positions as official war artists had to some extent insulated them from the direct experience of modern war. Studying closely a number of the works that the non-competent official war artists produced, it becomes apparent that what most of them saw and illustrated was not the actual violence of war itself, but largely, and with very few exceptions, the world behind the lines, and in Orpen's case, very far behind the lines. 
After the war, their works largely continued along the same tracks they'd mapped out for themselves before the war. Now finally, and most importantly, there were those that experienced the war at first hand and on the Western Front. Those who were or had been fighting soldiers, such as Paul Nash, David Bomberg, Wyndham Lewis, William Roberts and David Jones, or who had cared for the hideously wounded and dying, as did Jessica Dismore. It has been noted that when artists from this and the non-combatant second group exhibited examples of their war paintings together at the Royal Academy after the war was over, contemporary critics noted the total difference in the character of their works and gave a clear reason for it. The proof that they, the younger artists, have got to the heart of the matter is the comparative coldness of the older, the long-acknowledged masters, whose war pictures were the scene from the outside. Now, in 1921, Wyndham Lewis wrote, we are at the beginning of a new epoch, fresh to it, the first babes of a new and certainly a better day. The advocates of the old order that we supersede are still in the great majority. No time has ever been more carefully demarcated from the one it succeeds than the time we've entered on has been by the Great War of 1914-18. It is built solidly behind us. All the conflicts and changes of the last 10 years, intellectual and other, are terribly symbolized by it. To us, in its immense meaningless shadow, it appears like a mountain range that has suddenly risen as a barrier there's no passage back across that to the lands of yesterday. Those for whom that yesterday means anything, whose interests and credentials are on the other side of that barrier, exhort us dully or frantically to scale the obstacle, largely built by their blunders and egotisms, and return to the past. On the other hand, those whose interests lie all ahead, whose credentials are in the future, move in this abrupt shadow with satisfaction forward and away from the sealed and extracted past. So we are then the creatures of a new state of human life, as different from 19th century England as, say, the Renaissance was from the Middle Ages. We are, however, weak in numbers, as yet, to some extent, an uncertain and untried. A phenomenon we meet and are bound to meet from time to time is the existence of a sort of no-man's-land atmosphere. The dead will never rise up, and men will not return to the past, whatever else they may do. But as yet there is nothing, or rather the corpse of a past age, and a sprinkling of the children of the new. There is no mature authority outside of creative and active individual men to support the new and delicate forces bursting forth everywhere today. Now, I quoted that text at length because it illustrates a number of the factors which separated those men and artists who'd been through the direct experience of war and those who'd only seen it from the periphery or from a distance, who only knew it from newspaper reports. Now, the first was the idea that time was abruptly divided by the war, that what had seemed immutable and unchanging in the world had gone. The survivors were left to face a new world without clear guidance or directions. Now, the pipings of critics such as Bell and Fry, calling for an endurance to the historical path, 
carved by Cezanne and the post-impressionists was as totally irrelevant in this new world turned upside down. Now, secondly, whilst the war was a barrier between the past and the present, acting as a no-man's land, it's a very military image, it still cast an enormous shadow and was present in the imagination of all those who'd been there. In the minds of the participants, the war went on forever. Now, artists who had to deal with this face the conundrum, fiftly put by Paul Nash after 1918, as how to be a war artist without a war. There was a complete dislocation between the world before the war and the new world revealed by the war. The only way in which enough soldier artists could deal with this was by raging against the world vision that had failed them. And we go back to Paul Nash, 1917. We are creating a new world. In the same year of the war that Bell wrote his article, Nash, who might be categorized as one of Bell's young men, having served in the trenches, having returned to convalescent England, had been appointed as one of the official war artists and gone back to France. With his previous experience of the full meaning of modern war, he understood the implications for actual participants. And after having seen the fruits of Passchendaele, he wrote in a rage, I have seen the most frightful nightmare of a country, more conceived by Dante or Poe, than nature, unspeakably, utterly indescribable, but only being in it and of it can never make you sensible of its dreadful nature and what our men in France have to face. We all have a vague notion of the terrors of the battle, but no pen or drawing can convey this country, the normal setting of the battles, taking place day after day, month after month. Evil and incarnate fear alone can be the master of this war, and no glimmer of God's hand is seen anywhere. And he concluded, I'm no longer an artist, interested and curious. I'm a messenger who will bring back word from the men to those who want the war to go on forever. Feeble, inarticulate will be my message, but it will have a bit of truth and may it burn their lousy souls. Now, thirdly, Lewis had marked out the chasm between those who still tried to cling to the remnants of the old world vision, and those who sought to cope with the new world by clutching the old, the post-war repeller order, and those few who faced the new world brought into being by the war. This chasm had opened up between the fighting soldier and the complacent, patriotic, fatuous civilian at home. The result was the development of two Britons, one containing the fighting soldiers and the other non-competents at home. Now, a fundamental problem there arose when the soldier tried to communicate what this new world was like to the rest of society. Now, I don't know how many of you had uh, relations uh, who were involved in the Great War, or even the Second World War, but they never spoke about it. Very rarely did they speak about it. Why? Because they couldn't find the language to describe it. And this is particularly true of the artists that we get to look at. There were neither literary or artistic models or language adequate for the task. Nothing in the training that the soldier artists had been given of the Slade or their experience elsewhere had given them the artistic vocabulary to describe the nature of the new world that had come into existence in the war at the Western Front. Each one had to find his own way 
to create a visual language to encompass this. And because the experience of each one was so different, there were no movements with sympathetic colleagues, no critics, no precedents to act as a guide or support in the voyage of experiment. It's useful therefore, to look at the stories of a number of the younger artists of the period, for it was the younger men who were most affected by the war, as it was they who were most likely to have, to have volunteered or later to have been conscripted to serve in the trenches on the Western Front. This was brought out clearly in the Athenaeum Review of the 1990 exhibition of war pictures of the Royal Academy. The works of young artists who had experienced war compared with the older ones who had just been spectators. These are the works of men who are tortured by war and men who are not. Now, I've made a selection of a range of artists from the romantic Paul Nash onto the visionary David Jones, these men whose artistic language was largely unformed at the beginning of the war, the geometric abstractionist David Bomberg, to the cubist William Robert, and finally to the vortices Wyndham Lewis and Jessica Desmore. Now, the descriptions that I've given each one are not intended to be firm, but rather descriptive, temporary, putting them into a category that can be useful in locating them in their work at the time relative to each other, but which is not fixed and which probably each of them would have contended. What this survey is intended to show is how each artist experienced and reacted to the war and what happened to him in the years after the war as it was reflected in his or her painting. Thus, first be said, this is not a common group with an aim or a purpose, it's not a movement. It's comprised of a number of widely differing individuals whose one common experience was their time in the trenches on the Western Front. As we go through each of their stories, it'll be possible to see how the war touched the lives of each of them, what they then had to go through to find a meaning in their experience, to find an artistic language, to express that meaning, and to build this into work. Now, how Paul Nash felt about the futility of the war and put this into writing has been quoted. Once the war was ended, Nash seems to have lost his way and been uncertain to, as to what his artistic direction should be. The problem he faced was one that he expressed, and I've already quoted, how to be a war artist without a war. He needed to find a way to use in his peacetime painting the artistic language that he developed in order to encompass what he and his generation had experienced in the war. However, the art world in England after the war was not one which was welcoming to those who'd fought in the war. Many who had experienced it directly were in fact unable to talk about it to others, except to those who'd had the same experience and could therefore understand its language and thus its true meaning. Secondly, there was a hostility from influential Bloomsbury to the art that Nash and other war artists of his generation had produced. Nash and his peers found the abstraction that Bloomsbury favoured was insufficient and lacking when it came to be used in artistic language to express a new modernity, which now included the experience of war. Fry, for example, criticised Nash because he painted his war pictures in a spirit of propaganda and they were classified as journalistic and without aesthetic value. Nash had to proceed on his own with little support or encouragement from his peers. He couldn't settle, apparently moving from place to place, seeking a source of information 
from a physical location, such as the children's had been for him before the war, but where the inspiration of the location, his experience of the war, and the artistic language he developed there could be melded together produce the new art demanded by these modern times. In 1921, he settled at Dimchurch, and it is in the works that he produced there that we can see Nash successfully achieving a resolution, finding in the land, wall, seascape, a vision that paralleled the idea of the war front, with two opposing sides separated by no man's land. The idea that it was within the natural world there could be found those elements needed to express what he experienced. Yet this resolution did not come without a personal cost to Nash. In 1921, he suffered a complete breakdown, collapsing and remaining unconscious for a week. This was a culmination of the stresses caused by his war experience and the difficulties he'd experienced since the war. Yet after he recovered, his search went on. By the mid-1920s, Nash was exploring the possibilities of surrealism as an artistic language for his purpose. Now, surrealism had its origin in Dada, the revulsion against a scientific, logical, practical mind that had enabled widespread mechanized warfare, and replacing it through accessing the subconscious and thus liberating the unconscious mind. This approach led to an art which sought to fix dreams and to create a new reality by unexpected confirmations and combinations. Now, before the war, Nash focused on evocative landscapes, seeking to find in them an expression of inner meaning in the style of Samuel Palmer. By the 1930s, Nash had evolved an artistic imagery and language that combined his thinking about landscape with surrealist motifs to produce an art which, for him, answered some of the questions raised by the war. Now, like Nash, David Jones took his drawing pad to war with him and continued to sketch what he saw all the time he was at the front and in the trenches. He was wounded on the Somme in 1916 and was then invalided out with trench fever in 1917. Of his time in the trenches, he wrote, you can hear the silence of it. You can hear the rat of no man's land, rut out intricacies, strut, strut, strut. How about the earth? Trowel his cunning paw. Uh, Jones, as well as uh, an artist, was an extremely interesting poet as well. It was his experience of modern war in the trenches that provided the foundation for his development as an artist in the post-war years. After a total of seven years' training before and after the war, Jones had still not found, in the conventional approach they had learnt, an art language that could appropriately express his experience of the war. However, in 1921, he made two highly, for him, significant moves. Now, firstly, he converted to Catholicism, and secondly, he joined the Guild of St. Joseph and St. Dominic. And the Guild was made up of a group of Catholic artists based at Ditchling in Sussex, 
and led by the artist and sculptor Eric Gill, who had himself converted to Catholicism in 1913. Jones became engaged to Gill's second daughter, and Gill wrote of the approach to his art that Jones developed in the time with his family. Quote, we would miss all the quality of his work if we did not see that it is a combination of two enthusiasms, that of a man who is enamored of the spiritual world and at the same time as much enamored of the material body in which he must clothe his visions. And then what concerns him, Jones, is the universal thing showing through the particular thing. And as a painter, it is the showing that he tries to capture. Jones himself said, I used to say to the chaps that I thought that the theory of post-impressionism about a painting and whatnot being a thing and not the impression of something was analogous to what the Catholic Church maintained in her dogma about the Mass. I'd like you to reflect on that for a little while and tell me what it actually means. Jones developing an underlying philosophy for his work. He developed his own personal artistic language in which to express it. Now, at its core was drawing and drawing of a motif that could carry a meaning for the viewer. Structure was provided by the creation of a central image, and then the linkage of that image to a series of surrounding images that had their own meanings and linkage to the central image and to each other. Meaning in a Jones work was thus many-faceted and layered. Rather than using oils, Jones found in watercolors, where the white of the background gave light to the colors, and where the lines showed clearly through the paint, or could be clearly scribed over, an appropriate way to add meaning to his works. In the preface to his poetic work, Anathemata, Jones laid out the basis for his approach to both his written and painted works. To begin with, he described the source for the images that he used to populate his works. Part of my task, he said, has been to allow myself to be directed by motifs gathered from such sources as have by accident been available to me and to make a work out of these, out of that mixed data. This, you will say, is in a sense the task of any artist in any material, seeing that whatever he makes must show forth what is his by this or that inheritance. He then went on to discuss the role of the artist in selecting from this store of motifs those that had meaning for him in which could be used to transmit that meaning to the viewer or the reader. Quote, the artist deals wholly in signs. His signs must be valid, that is valid for him, and normally valid for the culture that made him. To, to, to look at a Jones work is an extremely dense experience. The end piece shows a lamb tangled also in barbed wire, pierced by a spear and shedding blood. Here the reference is to the Lamb of St. John, of course, perhaps also to the sacrificial lamb caught in a thicket and replacing Isaac as Abraham's sacrifice to God. The cross-referencing between the front and end piece is also clear, the soldier being led like a lamb to the slaughter. However, there was in Jones' time a problem that faced all the artists, what he called the break in common culture as a result of the war. In times past, the artist would have found his source material in the history of his own society a history that likely to be also known as audience and therefore valid for them too. And Jones, uh, quotation from Jones, the flowers for the Muses' garland would be gathered from the ancestral. It becomes more difficult when the bulldozers have all but obliterated the mounds, 
when all that are left are the potting sheds and the disused hypercasts. This then was a problem for the artist of Joan's time, a problem they had to face to find an art language, a system of signs, valid for both the artist and his audience. He, the artist, somehow that has to lift up valid signs. From 1928 to 1932, Jones was highly productive, making more than over 200 works. He was a professional Welshman, uh, basically raised in broccoli. I've never understood the connection between the two, but uh, he managed it. Over the years 1931 to 33, disaster struck, and like Nash, he suffered a delayed nervous breakdown. His doctor's comments were revealing. You must have been a bloody sight more frightened in the First World War than you realized at the time. He abandoned painting, and like Lewis, turned to writing. Although he did later return to painting, it was always with huge difficulty. The onset of the breakdown can be charted in his letters to his friend Rennie Haig. And I quote here, been trying to paint, but with no result, save intolerable annoyance and rage. I tried to do a painting from the scullery of your cottage. Ghastly mess, can't see anything. You know, gone. It really is an awful curse, you know, this everlasting getting ill, and it's getting worse every year. Of all the painters to be considered, David Bomberg was the one whose breakdown from shell shock occurred earliest. In fact, actually during his time in the trenches. Before the war, he was possibly the most successful young artist of his generation. He'd visited Paris with Jacob Epstein, and met Picasso and Modigliani, and was aware of all the isms that were developing in France and England in order to better to express through art the underlying nature of the then modern world. He developed his own personal language, allying an abstract formal geometric structure with the modeling of elements maintaining a reference to the original motif. Indeed, this tension between abstraction and representation remained one of the constants of his work before and after the war. He exhibited at the Gupa Gallery in 1914, and of his work there he wrote that he wished to emancipate myself from the theme, to concentrate on the form, which must be contemplated from innumerable aspects. In this he was pa paralleling Picasso and Braque in the use of faceting for the representation of the subjects, to explore its possibilities in depth from multiple temporal and spatial viewpoints. Typical of his work at this period was a highly structured in the hold, where the abstract grid overlay virtually masks the forms that were the base for this work. Shortly after this exhibition, he joined the army and went to the Western Front. There he was totally traumatized by the war, stopped painting, and turned to poetry instead. And quote, they lie, trenchmen, rigid apparently, not caring, their souls cowering at the outgo and ingo of life. They live a thousand intermittent lives, those trenchmen, with liquid acid freezing on the heart, with faces hard, with faces drawn and livid, with eyes as strange as terrors are, and in the night, within the breaking of one shrieking shell, before the termination of a flight. Eventually, under the pressure of bombardment and the omnipresence of death, Bombard reached a crisis point. He sought a way out of his intolerable situation by an act of self-immolation, shot himself in the foot. Fortunately for him, he was given time to recover and was eventually appointed a war artist. It was following this crisis and appointment 
that he reached a critical turning point in his work. The first version of his work, uh, Sappers at Work, for the Canadian war artist was rejected as being too cubist. He therefore painted a more naturalistic one with less color and geometric dynamism, a more structure and more realist. It's perhaps not enough to say that it was this incident that left him uncertain as to what was an appropriate artistic language for him to now to use to analyze and report on a world that included all the horrors of the modern mechanized war that he experienced on the Western Front. After the end of the war and an exhibition of his drawings, he stopped painting for some time and left the city to live in the country. Eventually, he returned to the city and to painting and then began to develop a different vision, far away from the geometric imagery that he had deployed before the war. However, he was still feeling the effects of the war and of his painting grief produced at this time, he wrote, there are such sorrows on a battlefield that they who have never fought can never realize. Commissions dried up and there was a total lack of purchaser for his work. Now, Muirhead Byrne, who was the first of the official war artists and a great friend and a long-term supporter of Barnberg, advised him that I am still not sure that you should face the troubles and difficulties of realism. I only mean that we all have a tendency to put on a convenient uniform which happens to be a kind of cubism today, instead of finding out what is at the bottom of our souls and stripping it to give shape. And importantly, he recommended that Bomberg try a franker naturalism and see how much design and powerful feeling you can get into that. Bone recommended that he become an official artist to the Zionist movement, and he therefore went to Palestine for four, four years. His work in Palestine and later focused largely on landscape, not as an exercise in pure representation, but like Paul Nash, a search for a means to, to discover an aesthetic rooted in the harmonies of nature and organic forms, the spirit in the mass. As was David Jones, Bomberg was sure that the world of things exists, but just what our relationship is with them, he regarded as an incomprehensible mystery. Bomberg learned from cubism the power of abstract structure, but feared the ultimate sterility of abstract geometry when it is divorced from the organic and dynamic forms of life. But then having the problem of losing the coherence provided by structure. Later he traveled to Spain and Russia before finally returning to England and relative obscurity, but considerable influence on later generations of young artists as an art teacher. Now, like Bomberg, William Roberts came from a poverty-stricken background, and in 1910, he gained a scholarship to the Slade. He left the Slade in 1913, and already his work was influenced by Picasso and the Cubists. See his Return of Ulysses and the Toe Dancer. Both have underlying geometric stru structure, a raised viewpoint, and the exaggerated angularity of the abstracted figures. All these were to be the hallmarks of his future work. He eventually joined the Lewis Circle, and two works which he painted there illustrate how his practice changed during the period of his association with the Lewis Group. His St. George and the Dragon and the Machine Gunners. They display most clearly the impact of vorticism and futurism in their virtually complete abstraction of form, strong diagonal lines, and strongly contrasting black and white. Roberts joined the artillery and in 1916 went to France. 
There he continued to draw and paint, and what was virtually his first word there showed a group of dead Germans sprawled in a trench, their limbs and bodies splayed out in an interlocking structure. The viewpoint and the structuring were continuations of his earlier practice. What is so interesting about this is the reversion to realism. The reality of multiple deaths in the war was sufficient to create a demand on an artist that no abstraction could fulfill. Much of Robert's time was spent under intense fire. Of one incident, he later wrote, the Germans appeared to have our range, scoring direct hits on the battery. One midday, as several of the gunners were sitting outside the dining room shelter, having a lunch of bully beef stew, a Bosch shell burst amongst them, killing two. Dead were placed on a dining room table wrapped in blankets as their blood oozed slowly over the zinc table. After 17 months in France, Roberts returned on leave to England. Whilst there, he stayed in the Tour Eiffel, where he and the other Vorstes once had been regulars. And writing later this leave, he contrasted life at the front and what he found in England. The electric lighting in the restaurant was somewhat dazzling after many months of candlelit dugouts. The proximity of the war to England, yet the contrast between the life in the two sites and the impossibility of any real communication between the two sets of people who inhabited each of these worlds was a significant feature of the war years for Roberts. In 1918, he was appointed as a war artist and produced two works. The first gas attack at Ypres, the second was Shell Dump France. In these works he did, as other young moderns who went to war, such as Bamberg and Lewis himself, moved away from abstraction and the geometric structuring that had marked their earlier works. And whether or not this was the result of the patron's requirements, it's worth noting that none of them returned again to explore or to use that artistic language in their post-war works as an expression of the post-World War. In painting such as Diners 1919, it's possible to see the beginnings of the features that became trademarks of Robert's work. There's the elevated viewpoint, the structured framework, the strong verticals and diagonals, and the figures not so abstract as they'd been in the machine gunners, but more so than they were likely to be later. Port of London, 1924, brings in a further factor that was also to be a constant. It was based on the scenes and lives drawn from the lives of ordinary people at work in the streets, the parks, cinemas and restaurants. For these scenes illustrating aspects of the social life of ordinary people, he used a structure similar to that of Puvis de Chavannes or Leger. Clearly defined tubular human forms, brightly covered in stiff poses, were superimposed like cutouts onto the background. This self-identification with ordinary people can be seen most clearly in his self-portrait. Such paintings are, above all, a complete rejection of Bloomsbury and significant form. They also mark Roberts as taking a different path from that of the other young artists study here, seeking to find a meaning in life in the post-World War and a language of painting to express this. A later biographer referred to Roberts as liking to talk to ordinary people in daily life. On the other hand, he loathed art dealers, critics, art historians, journalists, museum curators, and gallery directors. He had no respect for men such as John Rothenstein, the then director of the Tate Gallery, who in 1956 sponsored the Vorticist exhibition, giving pride of place to his friend Wyndham Lewis, and virtually excluding the contribution of other members.
Given the choice, robbers preferred not to have anything to do with such people, and perhaps with good reason. For example, after refusing to help the art critic Richard Cork with his exploitation of mortism, the latter labelled Roberts as being a notorious recluse, a hermit, waspish and angry, of outright misanthropy, and of suffering from enduring bitterness. What it may be possible to see here, paralleling the social divide, is a continuation into the civilian life of the division between the line and the staff, the deep contempt that men such as robbers, who actually had to do the fighting and the painting, had for those who never shared or understood the work of the fighting soldier or the artist. Wyndham Lewis, whose similar contempt for Bloomsbury non-combatants we've already seen, presents at once the most interesting, yet the most enigmatic of the British artists of the earlier 20th century. One reason that art historians have been preoccupied with him is that as well as his paintings and what they may or may not express, he was a hugely prolific writer and critic with strong views about art and its relation to the modern world. These views changed significantly over time, especially as a result of his experiences during the war. It is thus possible to find material to support widely differing analyses of the underlying wellsprings of his art and the reasons for the fundamental changes that took place in his work between, say, 1913-14 and the 1930s. Lewis, like so many of the pre-war cohort of British artists, attended the Slade, but was of an earlier generation than Nash, Roberts, or Bomberg. He had also travelled extensively in Europe and had direct experience of the work and thoughts of the modern movements, especially the Cubists in Paris. Initially, his work was appreciated by Bloomsbury. Bell chose a number of his paintings for the 1912 Post-Impressionist exhibition, and Fry invited him to exhibit with the Grafton Group, and then to join the Omega Workshop. This was a group of young artists representing the sort of new art that Fry was trying to encourage. However, Lewis later stormed out of Fry's Omega Group, creating, as was his wont, a furore in the process. With a number of young artists, he then set up the Rebel Art Group, what set the group apart from its English contemporaries, and what has engaged the interest of art historians ever since was the publication of the Manifesto of Blast, uh, which expressed the intellectual basis for the group coalesced loosely around Lewis, and which he then named the Vortices, and the art which they produced of Vorticism. Blast was largely written by Lewis. It was the ideas of the time concentrated by an individual energy into a doctrine. However, these ideas were very much Lewis's own rather than those strong healthy by a unified group. They ran along three interconnected lines. Firstly, there was the rejection of the immediate past and the sort of art that it produced and was still producing in the Academy. Thus, Pointer, the president of the Royal Academy, was one of the first to receive a blast. Lewis cleared the ground for a completely new art of which he was to be the prophet. The pertinent question that Lewis then asked was, why had Britain the home of the Industrial Revolution and of the new world that the revolution called into being not yet produced an art which adequately expressed the spirit of this new age? In response to this and rejecting all the other new art movements, Impressionism, Post-Impressionism, Cubism and Futurism, each as inadequate in its own way, he proposed in their place 
a new form of art which he called vorticism to be the form which would most effectively express this modern world. Yet the war was to catch up with him. And in 1916, he joined the army in the artillery and was after a time in the ranks commissioned and went to France, to the front, and to the Third Battle of Ypres, commonly known as Passchendaele. There he was repeatedly shelled and also carried out the most dangerous task of being a forward observation officer. That entailed his lying out fully exposed, registering the fall of his battery shells on the enemy. Of a typical shell burst incident during this period, he later wrote, it was at me the shell had undoubtedly been aimed. It exploded two feet from my head. The top of the dugout wall was between my head and the burst. Without it crashing into your head, you could not be nearer to a shell than that. He did not paint or draw, but did collect material. And later in 1970, he went back to England on leave and whilst obtained a position as an official war artist. He worked firstly for the Canadians, painting a Canadian gun pit. And then he worked for the British painting, a battery shelled. Both these, the former lesser, are an amalgam of Lewis's vorticist work with the tense lines and faceting that marched his approach then, combined with a new realism. There has been a considerable debate about the latter, ranging it from it being merely a response to the official demand for non-cubist paintings, a demand that was also to create problems for, amongst others, Bomberg, to the belief that such realism was Lewis's response to the new conditions of a modernity expressed in industrial warfare. He himself wrote, war and those miles of hideous desert known as the line in Flanders and France prevented me with a subject matter so consonant with the austerity of that abstract vision that I had developed that it was an easy transition. Yet this does not fully explain what happened to Lewis's work in the immediate post-war years when compared to his divorces, abstract paintings such as the crowd. His two war paintings were more realistic than his earlier works. He wrote, The war was asleep, deep and animal, in which I was visited by images of an order very new to me. Upon awaking, I found an altered world, and I too had changed very much. The geometrics which had interested me so exclusively before, I now found bleak and empty. They wanted filling. They were still as much present to my mind as ever but submerged in the coloured vegetation, the flesh and blood that is life. However, following the war, Lewis curtailed his artistic production in favour of writing. An art historian seeking to explain his work had drawn hugely, in some cases exclusively, on the latter. Yet by refocusing on the sort of art that Lewis actually produced during this period, a much more interesting story appears. What is clear is that the intellectual and emotional sources for his art had been truly blasted, and that in these years it is possible to see him as a lost figure, psychologically damaged by the war, desperately seeking to find a way of understanding the new world that had come into being with the war, and to find an artistic language that could describe an appropriate private and public reaction to it. Later he described this process. My semi-retirement had now lasted two or three years. Work had been continually going on from still life and much out of my head with the object of creating a series of signs whereby I could adequately express myself. 
and note here the need for new artistic language, new science for a new post-World War. And the language is very similar to that deployed by Jones. The pre-war vorticism developed for a pre-war modernity no longer sufficed. So in the immediate post-war years, there was a reversion to drawing, and specifically to drawing of the human, most frequently female, nude figure. Later, he wrote this time, when I came out of my Vorthes period, just before the beginning of the 20s, I set myself to work to perfect my drawing by practicing tirelessly in work from models. And the key to these drawings lies in the brilliant control of the line to give form and shape to the image. They are largely drawn in crayon, as against his earlier figure abstractions done in ink. The idea of painting is only represented in such works by a light wash, normally yellow or brown. Far more of these were produced than survived, and they show that much though he might have proclaimed in his writing that he rejected the Rappel à l'Ordre, he himself had to find a sure place to start from. And this could only be done by going back to the beginnings of his artistic life and by constant practice, ensuring that the foundations for future development were secure. So from 1921 to 25, he produced a number of portraits. They are in many ways natural developments of his life drawings and work both as presentation and as formal construction. Lewis's control of line evokes volume and personality with extraordinary power and finesse. What such portraits did also was to provide Lewis with funds that he desperately needed at the time. On the other hand, Lewis later wrote of his immediate post-war development, I had at all the times a desire to create a race of visually logical beings. They were not created as we create characters in a book, but with some purely visual end in view. If I had given them a name, it would probably have been monads. From this, Lewis's search for an artistic language in which he could communicate his vision of a post-war world is clearly apparent. The use of the word monad to describe the forms that he had found to do this is equally revealing, considered against the sort of image that he was creating from early 1920s onwards. In the Leibniz philosophy, monads are the ultimate elements of being reflecting the universe. In man, the dominant monad is the soul. Works such as Room 59 and The Surrender of Barcelona. They are structured with a series of verticals, creating a framework for blocks of color and intricate infillings. Frequently, they are people by serial creatures of Lewis's imagination, bird-headed or in Viking helmets. What these works appear to be are explorations of the mental world of the artist, a place where the subconscious and the conscious world interconnect. They might, in fact, be considered a form of British surrealism long before Paul Nash arrived there in the 1930s and could be thought to parallel the developing surrealist movement on the continent. Towards the end of the 20s, Lewis praised the work of surrealist artists, such as de Chirico, and said how much it interested him. It is perfectly astounding the dreams they represent. There's a complete world, and this world, it must be recalled, may be the actual world of the future. Lewis described how he intended such works to be in dialogue with viewers. For what the artist public also has to be brought to do is to see its world and the people in it as a stranger would. One way of achieving this 
is to display a strange world to the spectator, and yet one which has so many analogies to his that, as he looks startled into attention by the impressive novelty, he sees his own reality through the veil momentarily in truer colours. I thought it right to include the artist Jessica Dismore with the story. She was one of the founders of Vorticism. She funded the Redbot Art Group in the early days and Wyndham Lewis and took part in its exhibitions, writing for and illustrating Blast. She was influenced by or influenced Vorticism, as can be seen by the changes in her work from the square in 1914 to her abstract composition in 1915. During the war, she served as a nurse in France, as a woman not participating in the actual fighting, but seeing the damage that modern warfare had on the bodies of young men. And in 1921, she suffered a nervous breakdown. In the 1920s, her work focused largely on portraits in a style similar to that of David Jones. However, still looking for an appropriate artistic language for her times, her work became increasingly abstract. Sadly, in 1939, she committed suicide. One of her friends commented that the trigger was the sacrifice for her own complexity and the inevitability of her future movement into abstraction with the knowledge of its unbearable coldness and desensualization. All of these artists, apart apparently from Roberts, suffered from personal breakdowns during or soon after the war brought about by their war experience. Now, in this, they were not alone. Many other artists and other soldiers of the war suffered from shell shock in the same way. Yet what is interesting about this is how, for many other young artists, such a breakdown also occurred at a crisis point in their work as they sought to find a language for their art that would address this new world. What this does represent is a parallel effort by a group of highly talented young people who shared one mind-shattering experience to make sense of the post-war world and to find an artistic language appropriate to their experience. The work that they produced as a result, experimental but always vital, should now be thought of as a reflection on one of the most deeply felt and considered events in modern history. Now, there's no doubt that the UK had been changed fundamentally by the war. Whilst there was significant continuity, below the surface lay the seeds of change, and this developed rapidly. This is most evident in the economy. We, we spoke earlier of the 1929 slump in the traditional industries such as shipbuilding and mining, and the 20% unemployment of the late 1920s. However, in the same period, British industry was beginning a second industrial revolution and rapidly equipping itself with the new industries such as car manufacturing, where production went from virtually zero at the end of the war to half a million units annually by 1939. The national grid was developed with a series of electricity generating stations. New industries were largely based in the south and the Midlands, in towns like Oxford, Rugby, Coventry and Birmingham. Most importantly, it's estimated that two million houses were built over the 20-year period with rates of building in the 1930s that we are still unable to equal today. There was provision of universal education after the age of 14, and with this, there was the growth of mass entertainment with the cinema, football, collation of the press. All this was accompanied by 
striking changes in social attitudes. Women achieved the vote. Nancy Astor became the first female MP. And with the loss of so many men during the war, there was a cohort of women who never married and who were economically active. Mary Stepp published her book on birth, birth, and the outlines of the welfare state were laid down. The art that we've been looking at, the art of young people deeply affected by the war, moved into the mainstream, refreshing and reviving it, and giving evidence of the changes that were occurring in the world and the new artistic languages that developed as a result. For example, it is impossible to imagine Eric Ravillus without Paul Nash, John Piper without David Jones, Frank Auerbach without David Bomberg, or Graham Sutherland without Wyndham Lewis. Art truly displayed how the world had been turned upside down. Thank you. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A History Group, or the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. This podcast has been produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening.